1: what did you notice in that period of meditation and then the discussion with a partner? Um, if you imagine you're just trying to notice the phenomenon of what's happening and so what I mean by that is not like oh I'm such a bad meditator and you know I'm never going to do this every day but just <coughs> notice the phenomenon of what's happening subjectively what, what do you notice?
2: Well, When you talked about science I thought about how you know, science is always trained. Something concrete. Uh-huh. trying to create an uh, experiment that yeah. can be replicated. Yeah. And I found yeah. that the, the breath is constant, right? The breath is yeah. something that's kind of unchanging, but um, the circumstances of the, the experiment can never be replicated, right? So there's uh-huh. always some different variable, maybe a, a hip, an ankle, a thought, right. uh, a motorcycle. Yeah. So I, I found that from a scientific perspective, it's, it's meditation is it's never going to be. Going right. to uh, something to, to Different.
1: experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <coughs> Thank you. Yeah.
0: I was saying, um, this was the first time that Just i actually. Just
1: pick up a little uh, bit louder.
0: This was the first time that I actually realized how my train of thoughts will go, like similar to your story yesterday with the tractor. Yeah. Like I was thinking about my knee, and I'm like, oh my god, this hurts. And oh, um, I wonder if it hurts me, like, you know, I'm thinking of martial arts and then. I start thinking it's on Clive down. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I was aware. I'm like, oh my god, I'm doing that. It's how far it's gotten yeah. before that I
2: brought it
1: back to my breath. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can go a long way from a little discomfort in the knee.
2: <laughs>
1: I have knee cancer. I'm gonna die of this. You know. Yeah. Andrew, um, I also have a.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but I noticed how clever my mind was in the sense that
1: if I come back to the rep, it did this thing where in the darkness it would create shapes, circles, squares, patterns, yeah. and the shapes would take on real life things. Mm-hmm. So a person I know or a scene that I remember. Yeah. I'm just so damn clever. Yeah. 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 I found like my mind was continually trying to sabotage from city
2: still. Yeah. By
1: Physical pain. Yeah. So say say more about that. So there was physical discomfort. So I had a sore
2: knee, same thing. And, uh-huh. and I kept trying to, you know, go back to the breath, but my brain kept saying you know, kept going back to it. Right. So that I would move. Yeah. 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 I was visually distracted. I visually distracted. distracted. Yeah, I, yeah. I of the color in my eyes. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. like
2: pinks, yellows and then it would go, I would try and get rid of that yeah. and it would go white for a split second yes. and as soon as I relax I'm surprised for the concrete.
1: Yeah. so when you have that happening I, I think of that as picture thoughts they're thoughts but they're in the form of images so if you could set up like a hierarchy or a map um, at the top you would have concepts right In Pali, it's called papancha, which means conceptual proliferation. So, concepts proliferated with other concepts. Below that, you just have language. Below that, you have like words and hunches. Below that, you have images. And below that, you have sensations. And in the history of the last century of Western psychology, there have been a lot of debates about this. Like in French, uh, philosophy, uh, Jacques Lacan, he said that, that the whole field of perception is structured by images. Uh, sorry, by language. By language. And Carl Jung, his whole idea was everything was structured by images. Right. Everyone thinks a different things the baseline. But a meditator, you can watch all this happening. Like you can see that when a sensation arises, an image comes and then a thought comes, and then an idea comes, and you can actually trace the whole thing back down, okay? But when an image comes, it's interesting to see how your mind will stick to anything. So you see the image, but it, you, you also want to see that it's a mirage, that it doesn't actually exist. And, and there's a whole tradition of dream yoga where, when you're sleeping, this is really interesting for people who like meditation, but when you're sleeping, you wake up in the dream. You wake up while you're dreaming. And then, if there's someone speaking to you, or there's a character there, you see how they don't exist. So you're waking up in the dream to look at the content of the dream, to see that the content of the dream doesn't actually exist and it's just a dream. And when you get good at this, then you can start to see that the you in the dream that's perceiving the dream revolving around you doesn't exist. And then you can't tell the difference between waking and dreaming, because you're asleep, but you're awake to what's happening so that you can see the empty nature of thoughts. And there's a practice you can do, actually, if you want to try this, is once you can wake up while you're dreaming to see this, the technique is you have a book beside your bed, and you, you look at, you read a sentence of the book. And if you read the sentence, and then you go back to the dream, and you can't remember the sentence, then you know you're awake in the dream. And if you read the sentence but you, remember, you can't remember the sentence, then you're still dreaming. Does that make sense? So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing to explore. So you're dreaming and you wake up in the dream. You wake up, but you're not really awake. You're sleeping, but you're using the content of the dream so that you can investigate how everything that's a product of the brain, doesn't have an inherent existence. If you go to university nowadays and you study philosophy or neuroscience or anthropology, everybody believes this, that this is called essentialism. That there is no such thing as a thing. We all know this, right? Like this floor is moving faster than my hand. So I can't put my hand through the floor. But the floor doesn't actually exist as a thing. It's a conditioned arising you see? But so is thoughts, you see? You can't, like, like you can't find the thought. It doesn't exist inside you or outside you. It doesn't exist. It's just a matrix in that moment in time. But your ego makes it real. So you can use your dreams to explore this. And in the dream, you wake up. and you, you And you check out how the character that's doing something in a dream doesn't exist you can see it as a dream it's really interesting so anyways they say the test of the whole thing is like if you're not sure if you've woken up from the dream or if you're in a dream then you just read a sentence or two in a book and if you read a sentence in a book and then you close the book and then you lie down and then you can't remember what you just read you're still dreaming but if you read the sentence of the book and you can remember it, you're not dreaming anymore. So you have to go back to bed again. Because it's confusing for the mind. Mm-hmm. It sounds a little weird. But I, I promise if you try it, it's kind of interesting. But maybe I'm co- completely on a different tangent and you might be thinking, did Michael have espresso again? I have yeah. a question about that. Okay, uh, fir- first your hand went up and then, yeah. So when it's it similar to lucid dreaming, asked for that you're controlling the situation in the dream not just going on the to the dream it's not so much that you're controlling the situation of the dream it's that you're using the situation of the dream to investigate more deeply the nature of what's happening in the dream because here's the funny thing is that if you meditate for a while one of the insights you're going to have very quickly everyone who meditates has this insight is that all of your thoughts are about you Incredibly narcissistic. I mean, before you thought maybe you were a little narcissistic, but then you realize everything you think about everything is only to create a me. Like everything you think about Port Moody or Vancouver or religion or the people you hate, you think about the people you hate just to create a sense of you in the same way that Canada goes and kills people in other countries. And we do that by having a story about them as an enemy, but we only have the story about them as an enemy, because we're creating a national identity. So at times of war, the national identity is always stronger, because you know who the enemy is. But actually, it's a complete construct, and it changes. Now Vietnam is a great place to go on a holiday. Mm-hmm. Cambodia is like number one on the tourist list, you know Beautiful. OK? So when you go into the dream or you go into your mind in meditation practice, you want to see your life as a dream to ease clinging. It's not that it doesn't exist, but it also doesn't exist. <laughs> yes? What were you going to say? Yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about lucid dream, but for me, it just comes out of meditation practice, because when you fall asleep and you have a dream, you're always the main character of the dream. We never have dreams where we're not the main character. You notice this? It's so weird. So two things I always notice about dreams. You're, never, you're always the main character, and there's never the sense of smell. Like, it's very rare that that sense happens in a dream. Never for me, anyways. Maybe tonight it will be for you. <laughs> espresso. Yeah, espresso. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, I want to go a little further than this. Um, but I wanted to do it by looking at the, the handout. So, unless there's other questions, we could just jump right in. Yes? Uh, just speak a little louder so everybody can hear you.
2: Why do we ask like
1: Why? Why do we why do we react
2: yeah.
1: to dreams? Because
2: sometimes I think about a story when I'm on a web page. Yeah. I have a reaction to it. Yeah. It's just a story. <coughs> just a story. Yeah.
1: Does yeah. so everybody have a handout? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's only one handout. Oh. Yeah. What's your name again? There's a wonderful story where um, a monk asks uh, a teacher named Yunmen uh, what is this practice? It's a good question. What is this practice? And Yunmen says uh, an appropriate response. So you could say, like, what is the heart of Like, what are we doing? What's the heart of this practice? What's the point of this? And Yunmen has this beautiful response. What is this practice? It's having an appropriate response. You see, in our life, I think most of the time, we, we're not creatively, spontaneously, and in an unrehearsed way, responding to each moment. We're not. We're reacting. So reactivity and responsiveness are not the same thing. Reaction's always coming out of habit, mostly coming out of fear, and mostly coming out of self-cherishing. An appropriate response means that you're responding to what's arising from the place of what's arising. You're at the same level of what's arising. So in meditation practice, although people think that it's really passive, there's actually a lot going on. Like if you walked into this room and you thought, oh my God, how is this helping the world? Um, Actually, when you're sitting here and you see how much cultural momentum and reactivity there is in you, sitting still is really a profound, uh, rebellious activity. Don't you think? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's an embodied kind of rebellion. Because you're learning how to respond to each moment rather than meeting the moment with old patterns of reactivity or old stories. So um, the first layer is recognizing when something's arising that you can investigate it more thoroughly than the way you usually react to it. I hope you're seeing that. This is called patience and equanimity. Uh, In the early days of Center of Gravity in Toronto, one of the practices I had everybody do all the time, we called it the five-minute practice, was whenever something was arising that agitated you, you stay with it for five more minutes. And my partner, Karina, she has tattooed on her thumb uh, the number five. And so she does this practice all the time. This is a really good practice. So that when a situation's arising and you're triggered, you say to yourself, I'm going to stay with this for five more minutes. Putting on your kid's (laughs) snowsuit. trying to communicate with your teenager that their room is messy or having a close friend tell you that something you said really pissed them off even though you know you're right you stay with it and you listen
0: what you're saying you're staying with is the observation of the heat or your response to the moment yeah before acting on and embellishing that. Yes. Okay. So yeah. when you're saying oh, right, so yeah. it's staying in the observation.
1: So you're you're working with what's triggered in you, but not from the perspective that it's personal. Right. Like not from the perspective that like oh I'm triggered, it's all my fault.
2: Right.
1: Right. Like it could have nothing to do with something that you did. Yeah. It could be all them, but you're triggered, so you have to work with that. You see? You own that. Even though it's not personal. And what a meditator knows how to do is to continue tracking how they're feeling without jumping out of it, without drama. You can stay with something. It takes a lot of courage, you know, to really sit sweetly with something. Yeah. seeing a situation and even though you're in it you take yourself out of it to observe it I know this is my stuff but I'm just going to step back from it and yeah. kind of see it here for five. it's kind of a paradox because you say I'm going to step back to get a bit of distance from it but the paradox is that when you say that Getting the distance actually makes you feel more. So there's actually no distance, really.
2: You almost feel more sides of this
1: whole thing. Yeah, it's more physical, and that's the idea. That's why I I keep translating meditative practice as a physical practice. So, um, yesterday we studied Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, the first two lines. We didn't get very far, or maybe we got really far. And uh, today, I wanted to switch gears and I wanted to uh, explore some of the Buddha's teachings on the same theme. And then we're going to go back to the Yoga Sutra, and then we're going to go back to the Pali Canon, and then back to the, and go back and forth like this. And you'll start to see how they weave together, if that's okay. D- is it okay that we move forward with this? Yeah. Okay. So on page 11 of your handout, there's a wonderful sutta called the arrow. The context is... The Buddha is holding court, and various uh, students from different clans are coming to him, uh, asking him uh, to clarify his teaching. And uh, one person from another sect comes to him, named Malunkyaputta, and says, The Buddha, he's speaking to the Buddha, the Buddha does not declare these to me and I do not approve of and accept the fact that he does not declare these to me only if he declares to me either the world is eternal or the world is not eternal then I will lead spiritual life under him if he does not I will abandon the training Uh, it's a little formal the language is a little formal but basically he's saying I'm not going to study with you Like everyone seems to be studying with you. But I'm not going to study with you unless you tell me if there's an eternal. Or if there's no eternal. Right? So is there a God or is there not a God? Is there something that's beyond this conditioned world? Or is there not? And if you're a spiritual teacher, how could I study with you if you don't have a position about this? Because in religion, the position is that there is something eternal. This world is just a dream. And behind it is God, is the spirit, is the soul. This life is just changing, so I can't really rely on it. So, like, just come come clean. What's the deal? That's what he's saying. Because I really need to know. And if I can't know... If the world is eternal or not, or if there is an eternal world, then I can't really go through a training with you, because I don't I don't know what your position is. This is like contemporary religion,
2: mm-hmm. I
1: think. So here's what the Buddha says. Uh, suppose, Melunkiaputta, a man were wounded by an arrow, thickly smeared with poison. And his friends brought a surgeon to treat him. The man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name and clan of the man who wounded me. Until I know whether the man who wounded me was tall or short or of medium height. You can hear a sense of humor, right? Mm-hmm. Until I know whether the man who wounded me was dark or brown or golden skin." until I know whether the man who wounded me lives in such a village or town or city, until I know whether the bow that wounded me was a longbow or a crossbow, until I know whether the bowstring that wounded me was fiber or reed or sinew or hemp or bark, until I know whether the shaft that wounded me was wild or cultivated, until I know with what kind of feathers The shaft that wounded me was fitted, whether those of a vulture or a crow or a hawk or a peacock or a stork, until I know what kind of arrow it was that wounded me, whether it was hoof-tipped or curved or barbed or calf-toothed or oleander. All of this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile he would die. So too, if anyone should say, I will not lead a spiritual life under the Buddha until the Buddha tells me the world is eternal or not, that would still remain undeclared by the Buddha, and meanwhile, that person would die. So do you see how he's also doing a critique of religion here? Mm -hmm. He's saying, like, whether I tell you what's gonna happen, you're gonna die. You're going to die no matter what. And if you remember the context that I described yesterday of the history of that time, this is a radical thing to say, because the cosmology was so focused on reincarnation. And the Buddha is saying, well, actually, this whole notion of what you're going to be when you die, or what you were before you were born, or whether the world is eternal or whether it's not eternal, you're going to die. You're going to die. And because you're going to die, you've got to work with life before death. With life before death. So then the Buddha says, If there is a view the world is eternal, the spiritual life cannot be lived. Whether there is the view the world is eternal, there is birth, there is aging, there is death, there is sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, the destruction of which I prescribe here and now. Therefore, Malunkya Puta, remember what I have left undeclared as undeclared. And remember what I have declared as declared. And what have I declared? This is Dukkha I have declared this is the arising I have declared this is the ceasing I have declared and this is the path so dukkha, nirodaha and the path mm-hmm. why have I declared it? because it's beneficial this is really important it's beneficial it belongs to the fundamentals of spiritual life it leads to disengagement dispassion cessation Peace, Direct Knowledge, Awakening, and Nibbana. Nibbana is the Pali word for nirvana, which means uh, to blow out, to extinguish. And this is what I've declared. In other words, the Buddha is saying, to have a spiritual life, the thing that one must investigate is dukkha, It's cessation. The cessation of grasping. Right? And the path. And this is what I was saying yesterday. This order is very important. So the beginning is, there is dukkha. Do you hear that word he's saying here? Mm -hmm. It's really important. So what he's saying here is, no matter what, there's dukkha. Suffering, suffering, pain, lamentation, despair. He has a whole list of what dukkha is, right? That's why you can't translate. When you say suffering, that's not exactly that. In a way, dukkha is the inability to be content. There is this in our lives. Mm -hmm. And the only thing you can do about it, he says, is to turn towards it, is to embrace it. And when you embrace it, you let go." So what he's saying is, when you come at it with a belief, like the world is eternal, or the world is not eternal, that's not embracing dukkha in the here and now. That's actually creating what he calls dukkha-dukkha, the suffering from not being able to suffer. Mm -hmm. which maybe nowadays we would call addiction, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's actually the symptom of not being able to suffer. Addiction is not being able to suffer. It's not being able to feel pain, not being able to feel loss, not being able to grieve. Second, so first, embrace it. Embrace dukkha, number one first thing he's saying. And I love how he says it. He says, this is dukkha. The second thing he says is when you embrace dukkha, you let go. And what are you letting go of? Grasping. And when you let go of grasping, you experience something extremely profound for a human being, which is cessation. Nirodhah. Same as Patanjali, same word. Which means when you let go of grasping, you experience the cessation of grasping. And for the Buddha, this is so important for people to actually know what it feels like to let go of grasping. See, most of us, we don't let go of grasping. When we're grasping, we need it with analysis, don't we? I mean, I shouldn't hold on to this. This isn't good for me. I know it's not good for me, but here I am walking to the freezer for more ice cream. <laughs> but it's not good for me. But here I'm gonna eat the ice. And you're eating the ice cream like I shouldn't be eating this. This is so not yogic, you know. And like, but it's so good. She can't stop because it's analysis. But if it's physical, then you can say when the experience of grasping is arising I'm going to experience it as a sensation. I'm going to turn towards it. I'm going to let go of my reactivity, my compulsiveness, my obsessiveness, and then I'm going to experience the cessation of grasping. And then, here comes the best part. When you experience the cessation of grasping, a path opens up. And what I like about this teaching is he doesn't say what the path is. (laughs) He just says, when you experience cessation, a path opens up. But we all know this, right? Don't you know this? When you're not clinging, and you go, it's very scary let go. But then there's a path right there. <laughs> but you couldn't see it because you were holding on so tight.
0: And would you say the same thing can happen physically too, that space opens up or a pathway in like in the body opens up? Too? Yeah. I know I remember Brian D. Williams saying, like, in meditation you can if you experience physical pain, yeah. turn toward it, embrace it, yeah. rather than trying to continually yeah. push it away. Yeah.
2: yeah. What does it mean to embrace something? Yeah.
1: Um, yoga. Intimacy. To, to be really close with it. I remember um, one of the first time when I started practicing Zen, uh, in. In the Vipassana tradition, when you have a meeting with your teacher, you sit across from your teacher like a therapist, and you talk about what's going on. In Zen practice, when you have a meeting with a teacher, you sit knee to knee. So you sit like this close. So I remember the first time I had a meeting, we sat down together, and then the teacher went. (laughs) And I couldn't get any closer. And then they went so we were like really really close and that was it that was the whole teaching and then they rang the bell and that was the end of our meeting
2: Mm -hmm.
1: it was really profound Mm -hmm.
2: because
1: they were saying like do you want to know how this practice works you get really really close so it's like uh, if you have someone in your family who's getting old you know like an elderly parent does anybody have so, like elderly. Like, when you go to help them, you don't know what to do. How do you know what to do? Like, We don't know what to do. I mean, you can read books and everything. But actually, you just have to get close. You know? Or someone's dying. You know about this. Hmm? Someone's dying. There's not like a way to be with someone who's dying. I mean, you can take lots of courses, whatever. The only way to be with someone when they're dying is you get really close. Mm -hmm. And you respond. An appropriate response. Very intimate. Different with everybody. And if you are not present and you approach someone who needs care, um, you can feel it when you're not there, and they can feel it. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And they won't open up to you. So um, we need to do this with our kids, right? Uh, Just like be really close, but in an appropriate way.
0: But that's where the bravery I find comes, is the the intimacy of the moment and and then how uh, the places to apply that in the practical or physical world. Like, for example, in parenting. Yeah. This morning I can feel... Even though I'm connected with my son and making his breakfast, he has to be at school at a certain time, otherwise I can't get here on time and Mm -hmm. he won't get to his thing on time. So, even though I've set up the morning, set us up for success, there's a connected feeling, I can feel I'm starting to get amped up, I'm with myself, I see it happening. I still have to get him out the door and get out the door. And so, that's where the bravery comes in and that's where I sometimes feel at a loss, where I can be intimate with that feeling but then yeah. at the next place Or I recognize yeah. the anger is arising or my anxiety is arising yeah. and then the next place, that right action yeah. is sometimes the place where it gets m- much more confusing
1: yeah um, so the basic idea is um, when you're really close to the situation there can also be multitasking so you could also be like you know, I'm really close, but it's balanced, in like a ratio, with, well, we also have to get to school. Yes. And we have to do both these things together. Mm-hmm. So that's why I like this idea of practice as being an appropriate response.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. An appropriate. So you don't ideal, necessarily idealize, like, oh, I'm just going to meet you where we are, right. and we're going like, to let go of all our plans. I mean, when you have an infant, you do that.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. But when you have, like, a kid who's how old, is Sammy? Six. Six Like that's not good for a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. A six-year-old needs to learn how to get to school and so on. Uh, but they're learning from you how you're modeling your anxiety. So when you're all worked up, then they're feeling that. And actually, I think anyone who's a parent knows this is like the more worked up you are, the more your kid's going to mess with it. They're going to be like, "Oh, they're worked yeah. up, and now I'm going to get them. <laughs> now, now I'm actually. This is my chance to make them suffer.
0: They feel the repression too. Yep. Because I will say, Sam, I can feel myself starting to get anxious, and he'll say to me, "You're already anxious." Right. We are. Yeah. I'm
2: like, damn it! <laughs> 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 yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so I just want to just connect again to what's happening in this story because it, there's an interesting dynamic happening. Somebody comes to the Buddha from another sect saying to have a spiritual practice i need to know that's the main it's i don't think it's important to get into like the theology of it like is there the main thing is this person says i need to know and how do i know like how do i know what's real academics always study this part as like the buddha not committing to a theology But I don't think that's really the teaching here The teaching is a student's just saying I need to know So you'd think that after the Buddha says this The student would leave But the student like gets it And then this kind of deeper conversation happens Where the student goes Okay, how do I do this? Like that's a good idea Now how do I do this? So then Um I like in this part how they describe that he's an aged person. Um, approaches the Buddha and said to him, it would be good if the Buddha would teach me the Dhamma. So that's the Pali word for, Pali word for um, Dharma. Which means just in this context, it means the teachings. It would be good if the Buddha would teach me all the teachings in brief so I can dwell alone withdrawn, diligent, ardent and resolute, so probably this person is a really serious meditator, who maybe is living in a cave or something who, who really um, um, is in like high octane practice like they're going for it and they're saying to the Buddha okay, I, they're giving the Buddha information I'm old, maybe I don't have much time and I want to sit down and really see what you're saying. Like, verify it for real. And um, you can see in the tone of the question that he's given up the idea that he needs to know if things are eternal or not. I have a student. She's 21. She has one year to live. She has a rare kind of a brain cancer. So she came to see me when she... Uh, She's known since she was a kid this was going to happen. But every year like it gets put off, you know. So finally she decided, well, she was 19 and so she's still alive, so she applied to go to medical school. So anyways, she's like halfway through medical school. A quarter of the way through medical school. Anyways, she's going to die for sure this year. So she said to me, "I really want to know if there's heaven." It's like a valid question. She's never thought about this before. She's always thought, oh, I don't really believe in like, religion. But now, she's, it's here. The end is here. And she said, I really want to know if there's heaven. And she's just fallen in love also. She has a boyfriend. So I said, well, I, I can't answer that. But let's do a practice together. So um, when you kiss your boyfriend... I want you to really kiss him. And when you're kissing him, to also receive his kiss. So, like in the moment when you kiss your boyfriend, don't just like kiss him, but like actually treat that as the object of meditation and be fully there when you're kissing your boyfriend. And then you'll know the answer to that question. So, this is her practice she's working on. And it's bringing up so many interesting things because she's embracing her circumstances. She's not turning away from this person. And this is like her practice uh, to the end. So anyways, it's very inspiring to me. I have a lucky job, you know. I get to meet people in dire circumstances. So anyways, that's like maybe this guy, Malankya Puta, maybe he's dying. Those are the students who always really get this practice. Because they're dying. They're like, okay, what works? (laughs) So then, here's what the Buddha says. And this is, I think, one of the best meditation teachings ever. He says, here, Malunkya Putta, regarding things seen, heard, sensed, and cognized by you. Okay? So everything that you see, that you hear, and that you think, meditate on this. In the seen, there is just the seen. In the heard, there is just the heard. In the sensed, there is just the sense. And in the cognized, there is just what's cognized. So let me break this down when you go into your cave and you sit down and you see something all it is is what you're seeing so start with that and when you hear a sound it's just hearing a sound and when you think something it's just a thought that's really interesting isn't it? Mm. this is what he's saying it's just a thought and in the cognize in the thinking is just thinking. Like, just see that. Instead of putting it all together, like, oh, this is me. Just see how when you see something, it's just the act of seeing. Like, it's impersonal. And then he says, Then, you will not be of that. When you are not of that, then you will not be in that. When you are not in that, you will be neither here nor hereafter, nor in between the two. And this is the end of dukkha. Did that make sense to you? Should we break that down a little bit? Okay. When the sensation in the knee arises, okay, you say... My knee is killing me. I'm going to die. Right? But the Buddha is saying, in the sensation of the knee, let there just be sensation of the knee. There's just the, the cognizing of sensation in the knee. We all Do we understand that part? It's just knee sensation. Then he's saying... When there's the experience of knee sensation, painful knee sensation, if you can stay with it, you'll see that there's no you in it. There's no you in that. There is no you in the experience. There's just sensation of the knee. That the me is an add-on. It's a superimposition. You're tacking like like a sticky note you're tacking me all over things. But if you just open up to the sensation of me, you'll see that there is no you in it. And when you see there's no you in it, you'll see that there's actually no you. That your experience of you is a construct. And when you create an object, you create a sense of self. But when you're intimate with the object, there's no self. And then you'll see that you are not in the knee, you are not in here, you are not in between, and, and then he adds this for fun, I think, you're not in the hereafter, which was his first question, remember? Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: You're not in the eternal, you're not in between the knee and here. Like, for example, this is a fun experiment. Take your finger, okay. And if you point your finger at your hair, point your finger at your hair. And then you point your finger at your shoulder. And then you point your finger at your belly button. Then you point your finger at your chest. Then at your ear. Okay, So all those are parts of the body. But if you play around, there's a point around your nose where it feels like you're actually pointing at yourself. So just play around with that. Like, watch the tip of your finger. You notice there's a certain point Where it's like, it feels like you're pointing at me, at me. But if you move over a couple inches, it doesn't feel like you're pointing at yourself anymore. (laughs) And it's kind of intense when you're actually pointing at yourself. Can everybody feel that? Now that is so weird. That means that you are not here... And you're not here, but you're like here. <laughs> <laughs> is there survival
2: mechanisms or something to protect like, the, the hopes? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a really weird thing. But that's what the Buddha is saying here. He's saying like one of the troubles that we have in our life is how we make everything so personal. But actually, when you look more closely at things, there isn't a you in it. And you know, one of the, we're Canadian, whatever that means. But, but one of the things about living in this country is that everybody, I hope, who lives, especially in this province, is you've had this experience of going out into the natural world, where it's so big that you realize that like, you don't matter. <laughs> You don't matter at all. Like you're driving in the prairies and your tire goes flat and there's no one around and you could have this feeling, existential feeling. None of this has anything to do with you. You see? It doesn't. And um, that's really important to follow that thought. To really go deep in that. And this is what the Buddha is saying to investigate here. And let's imagine the life of this elderly man who's coming to see the Buddha. Where his whole life, maybe he's very religious, and he's heard about this guy, the Buddha, and he goes to see him. And he says, listen, I'm getting old, and I'm having some doubts about whether the world is eternal or not. What do you think? Do you think... think I'm going to go to something eternal when I die. And the Buddha is saying, there's actually something more interesting to investigate. Which is that you don't exist. (laughs) (laughs) And here's how you can explore it. Because if you explore it, you can be free. And it has nothing to do with a belief system. Nothing to do with a belief system. It has nothing to do with what you believe And that's why these teachings are going to become explosively popular in postmodern culture. Because we're sick of belief systems. We don't need any more ideology. And one thing that our medical profession has really forgotten is how to embrace suffering. We medicate it, but any of you who spend time in hospitals or with people with terminal illness or pain know that the medications don't work. Like they work, they can reduce some pain. But they don't help you with dukkha. They don't help you with dukkha. So these two things, the not needing this overarching belief in one thing, combined, with the practicality of learning how to embrace dukkha, how to let go of grasping, how to experience sensation, and how to trust that there's a path. And when you're on it, you know it. You know it. And when you're off of it, you know it. And that's why when you come to a workshop like this and you get exposed to the dharma, you can't ever leave it. I mean, you might think, oh, I'm going to leave this. I wasn't into it. I didn't connect with it. But actually, you can't ever leave it. You'll see. And when you meet other people who are practicing the Dharma, you can't ever leave them. Like, you might hate them, but you can't ever leave them. You're always going to think about them. So, thank you very much. Let's have a break for 15 minutes and then uh, we'll do some practices to finish.